Good morning, everyone. This is Austin Jardine. Welcome to the Vanguard Project. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. For those of you tuning in for the first time, the show focuses on telling the stories of others, working to understand what motivates them, what has made them into the person they are today, and hopefully relating to you in a way that gets you some motivation to either try something new or get after something you love. With me today is someone a little outside the immediate realm of guests we've had so far, which I'm super, super stoked about because I'm looking forward to tapping into his expertise on fitness, programming, competitive athletics, and the mentality to be successful both in and out of sports. Um, I'm sure there's going to be about a billion other things. I'm going to be doing my best to take notes and harass you. But with that being said, Mr. Derek is on the phone with me. So Derek, man, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a, it's a pleasure to be invited, especially in the infancy of getting this thing rolling and hopefully, you know, the number of people that we might be able to reach and at least getting into the mindset of what it takes to be successful at the things that we love to do. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've heard you talk at least once in person, and then I did a little bit of research listening to a couple other lectures and podcasts you've been on, and I'm really excited because I know you've got just a breadth of knowledge. So before we get into kind of your expertise and what you're doing now, do you mind just giving a little bit of background on who you are and how you've got to where you're at? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I like a lot of coaches that came up during the late 90s, early into the, into the 2000s, you know, we, we typically came up through the sporting world. And there was a number of venues that allowed a lot of coaches to develop. And you'll see it's, it's predominantly, you know, college football, college track and field. And now it's changed quite a bit, you know, with the invent of social media and the ease of which people can get information and get information back out. It's diversified the field quite a bit in terms of people's backgrounds. But in the beginning, you know, those were kind of the two major staples for who got into strength and conditioning and why. And it was typically Olympic sport track coaches that loved the throwing events, et cetera, and football. And I think the reason being is because they had such a massive strength component. So for myself, having a track and field program, that's kind of how I got into the world. And it started back in Southern British Columbia back in the, you know, probably mid nineties when I graduated high school. I came from a really small school with no coaching. You know, we didn't have a track and field program per se, but my dad had been a track and field athlete in an even smaller rural British Columbia town than I had been. And so he kind of helped me out, you know, and it's, it's one of those strange situations where I kind of fell into the discus and hammer and shop put purely by accident back in high school. And then when they, realized that I might have some aptitude on some level to do the sport. They kind of got me prepped to go to what you would think of as a regional meet and then eventually the equivalent to the state meet. And, you know, for perspective, I would have been, you know, geographically speaking, the kid from like Bonners Ferry, Idaho going to the state meet, right? <laughs> so it's like, we had all the uh, desire to do it, but we were a long ways from Boise. We were a long ways from Coeur d'Alene. Like when you think of how separated we were geographically from 
in British Columbia, what you think of as Vancouver. So Vancouver was, you know, the, the hub of everything for the province. And, you know, for me that, you know, if I jumped in the car back then, you know, I was looking at 11 and a half, 12 hour drive. Right. So I had to go all the way out to the coast if I wanted to compete um, with the best in the province. Um, our area was, was really, really rural. So when I grew up, I grew up right off of 95, you know, the same 95 that comes up out of, of the States. And if you drive on it long enough, you'll hit this like logging community that had 200 people and the town just went straight through it, you know? So where I grew up was no stoplights, no stop signs. I mean, there was a railroad crossing for obvious reasons, you know, that one they kind of figured out. Um, but for the most part, you know, there was by no means a lawlessness to where I grew up um, because when you take away all policing, you take away all fire departments and the closest uh, police would have been uh, 25 miles away. That would have been the closest. So once a week, it was really funny because you, you kind of learned the, the way the world worked. Once a week, they would drive out and do a small turnaround in the parking lot of the elementary school and drive back to the town they came from just to kind of let people know that they were still around you know, like to make you feel as if you weren't completely <laughs> hey, without here, some, but long ways away, long ways away. Right. <laughs> so, uh, and so because we grew up that way, we were in an incredibly, uh, self-sufficient, self-dependent community and, you know, and everybody worked for the same company and, you know, and if you had to get like major goods or whatever, you would drive into golden, which has now become quite, uh, a significant ski town hub with kicking horse resort. But for us, we were really isolated. So way out in the middle of nowhere, just by coincidence, I was drawn to a couple of things. Like I played a lot of sport activities, you know, skied from the time I could walk, rode motocross, did things like that. But it wasn't until I was probably 13 or 14 that I realized there was other sports outside of just the basics that they try to make you participate in, like volleyball, basketball. We didn't have football at all. And so, you know, kind of right when I got to that high school age and they started busing us from our middle of nowhere town into Golden. So, you know, I'd take that 45 minute bus ride every morning to high school. Um, it's when I started to discover, oh, there's, you know, sports like bodybuilding and weightlifting. And, you know, all of a sudden there's kids that are doing more than just running around the woods like a a bunch of wild men all day. So it was at that point that I started to realize that I was drawn to or kind of connected to whatever that intangible fabric, which is strength and conditioning or the desire to lift weights to be a stronger man or person or whatever you want to think of an athlete. Um, in the beginning, it was really like, it, it was just a desire to like, be on par with all these like loggers and trappers and mountain people that I grew up with, you know, like, and not realizing that, you know, I was just a kid. So I was going to grow into one of them regardless of what I did. But, you know, at 13 years of age, these guys were 
the masculinity of the of the men that I grew up around, my father included, were just big, strong, very hardy humans. All my uncles were over six feet tall. All my dad's brothers are over six feet tall, and they all worked in mills or worked in manual labor. So they were big men, and like they grew up in rural logging towns. And so for me, as a you know thirteen year old younger brother, you know. Uh, I realized at some point in my head that, oh, how could I get big? Well, these guys in the magazines at the grocery store are huge. I'm going to do what they do. And so I started lifting weights and, and there was no person that kind of guided me. There was no one that said, Hey, you know, you should start, you know, moving these barbells around. I would just look at a magazine and just copy what they did. And then eventually, you know, like comic books for a lot of kids, you start to become obsessed with the concept of it, right? Like, what are these things? Like, they didn't even look like humans, you know? Arnold Schwarzenegger was bigger than life and he had already retired, but he was still on every magazine, you know? And so not realizing it at the time, getting into the weight room so young and just having it be almost an intrinsic thing gave me the edge that eventually I would need to be able to get out of that tiny town in terms of athletic ability, because, you know, a lot of kids, unless they go to a big program, they're not getting educated in the weight room. They're not getting strength and conditioning development. None of those characteristics are being implemented. And so the fact that I was doing it on my own, and then when I started to play around in high school with things like the disc and the shot and eventually the hammer, I was actually doing the things that you were supposed to do to be successful without having anyone tell me to do it. I was getting stronger. I was working on athletics. I remember, you know, at 16 or 17, like seeing in a magazine, someone do a clean and press, right? Because we didn't have internet. We didn't have any of that stuff. So I'm like, ah, oh, clean and press. That looks cool. So I started doing clean and presses, not realizing that that would become a staple movement for a college shot putter, right? And so all those things were happening organically without me really having anyone tell me that it was what I needed to do to have success. I was just, I liked the way it felt. I liked how hard it was. It made me feel as if I was putting in that nine to five, like all the people that I was growing up with that did it to to buy a house or to have a truck or to make an income. They, you know, they just grind it away in the logging community. And so what ended up happening is over the course of like, you know, my junior, senior year of high school, I actually kind of started to develop a little bit um, in the big scheme of things. I, you know, I definitely wasn't a blue chipper by any means in high school. You know, I wasn't getting recruited aggressively. Um, I, no one even, to be honest, really knew who I was, but by the time I was a senior in high school, when I went out to the equivalent of the state meet, you know, I was able to take silvers in my three events or second place and shot disc and hammer. And so it got, it got me onto somebody's radar, but really not enough. So there was a couple small Canadian colleges that were like, well, you know, we don't do athletic scholarships like the U.S., but we can help you with, you know, offset books and tuition. And I just, for some reason, that just didn't resonate with me. It wasn't something I wanted to do. And to be honest, I didn't even know if I wanted to go to university. I mean, the idea of being a, an American collegiate athlete was never on my radar. It seemed impossible, sure. like it was way, way too far out, you know, for someone from where I was from. And so at the end of my senior year of high school, 
you know, I, I knew I wanted to do track at least one more year and see, just see what it was like. And the way it works in Canada back then is there was a lot of track and field clubs that would work with post high school athletes and maybe try to get them onto a junior national team or get them onto the national team eventually. But it was really, it, it was all volunteer basis type of stuff. And so we thought about it and I talked to my dad and I'm like, oh, I'd like to do this one more year. And he thought it was a good idea as well. Um, and so I moved to a town called trail British Columbia and it was, you know, an old, uh, European immigrant town that produced, uh, and smelted steel. Like it was a hard, hard town. You know, some people are familiar with it cause it's right on the Washington border and they, uh, red mountain, which is a ski hill up there, uh, exists just outside, but the town itself was completely built around old, hard industry. And what I didn't realize moving there is they had actually had a history of producing a lot of professional athletes and mostly baseball and hockey, which to, to this day is very strange, but they put a ton of money and this is, you know, as much as people don't like to hear this. And it, I saw it in the little town I grew up in when you take big industry, logging, mining, oil, doesn't matter. And you allow them to, and maybe this is why I'm, because of how I grew up, I, I'm a govern yourself mentality, but you allow them to govern their resources correctly. It's amazing how much of that they put back in the communities to make sure the infrastructure in these communities exists for the employees to be happy and the families to be taken care of. So Kaminko back then, which was a giant plant, dumped a ton of money into the community, which by default, instead of volunteer, Trail was able to hire coaches, hire staff, build facilities to keep the workers and their families happy. And oh, imagine that they start producing professional athletes, right? Because they actually have the infrastructure <laughs> for these kids to develop, right? And they, and they didn't have to depend on the government to give them a penance, right? So when I went there and started training after high school, I realized that A, I had a lot more to learn. I actually wasn't very good, uh, you know, all things considered, I was underdeveloped. Um, and for the first time, I was able to train with athletes that had been away to the US and competed in the collegiate system and come back home. And now we're training for Commonwealth Games or, you know, Team Canada for some sport or another. And it was during that year that I kind of got the bug in my ear that maybe going to the US to play sports and get a, an education was a really good idea. And I was, you know, already 18. And so I trained that year really, really aggressively, but I still had no idea how to close that gap. Like I didn't know how to get to the U S right. And this is pre-internet age. Um, you know, we had computers, but that was about it. And so what ended up happening is a, a buddy of mine named Greg Turner, who had competed at Washington state, go, you know, said, Hey, you need to go down this winter to university of Idaho and compete at the Kibbe dome. They have this open meet. You can just show up, sign up and compete indoors in the indoor hammer, as he called it, which was the weight throw. And so, you know, we trained and I had never thrown an indoor hammer. I didn't even know what it was. And so I just kind of went down and competed. And I, and it was funny because I ended up placing fifth at this little meet amongst all these division one athletes. 
and no one still had any clue who I was. I probably fell down, you know, three of six attempts, which was crazy to think back that I actually was able to even hang with these guys and be that bad. And what it showed is that there was a spark of raw talent. And so I'm like, man, how do I get to the US? I started doing my research and I didn't have an SAT. And so I'm like, well, that, that's a problem. I'm not going to get into a division one or what have you. And I, and I didn't know enough about D2s or D3s at that time. I just didn't. But I knew that the junior college system, you didn't have to have an SAT. And so what I did is, and it's so funny, it's serendipitous looking back at just how it all worked out. But I went into the library in, uh, in a town called Castlegar, and I pulled out this giant book, and it was two-year colleges of the United States. And what it was was just a directory, phone numbers and addresses. And, you know, being a small town kid and, you know, being afraid of the whole process that I was doing on my own and searching out, like I was, you know, scared to death. And I was almost scared to hold that book and think about what I was trying to do. I looked at what were the two closest geographical schools to where I lived in Canada. I mean, that was kind of how I made the decision to even start because I didn't want to get so far away from where I was from that I would be, you know, I guess for lack of a word in trouble, which is ironic considering what I ended up doing with my life. But um, the first one I called was Spokane Community and no one answered the phone, right? It was just, I probably called during track practice and that's how it worked. And so I was like, oh, bummer. So hang up the phone. Next one that was on my list closest, it was North Idaho College of Coeur d'Alene. And so I call up NIC and uh, Coach Bundy answers the phone. And it was interesting because I would learn later on that he never answered the phone. He was a history teacher <laughs> and a cross country teacher. And Bundy was in his office about 27 seconds a day. Like he hated that part of his job. And so when I called, he answered, uh, total coincidence, um, asked who I was, asked what I did. And at the time, I had thrown the high school hammer about 165-ish feet, uh, give or take. I, you know, it, I have to go back and look at the exact meters to feet conversion, but it was around 50 meters. Um, and the high school hammer is 12 pounds. The collegiate hammer is 16 and I hadn't really thrown the 16 pound hammer yet. So he, when he asked what my performance was, he just assumed that I by no means corrected him. He just assumed that uh, I was talking about the college hammer and I told him I threw it about 165 feet. And, you know, Bundy not being a throws coach immediately was like, wow, that's better than anyone we got. You know, would you be interested in coming down for a school visit and all this sort of stuff? And so I was like, yeah, let's do it. So within weeks, me and my dad were in the car driving down the quarter lane. And coincidentally, uh, North Idaho College at the time had two volunteer coaches from the quarter lane area, Bud Rasmussen and Bart Templeman. And they went on to start the Ironwood Throws Camp, right? And I didn't know any of this. I had no, no idea what I was getting into, not realizing who they were, not realizing what they were capable of. And so I get down there and I meet them briefly and, and Bart's just this bigger than life coach. Uh, you know, he played for the Broncos the year they were an expansion team. He was just, 
everything that you can think of as that classic 1960s, 1970s football era player and coach is Bart Templeman. Huge hands, huge stories, incredibly dedicated, extremely successful human. And so he right away was selling me, you got to come down here, you got to come and throw for us, let's get you signed up, all this stuff. And I was overwhelmed, right? This is quite like little NIC. And I, and I thought I was being recruited by an SEC school, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so I ended up, uh, you know, thinking that, yeah, absolutely. This is exactly what I want to do. Bud Rasmussen, who eventually became my full-time coach was a, a English teacher at Coeur d'Alene High. I didn't realize that he was this up and coming throws coach under Bart, who was his mentor, uh, and Bud would go on to be the 2008 U.S. Olympic team coach, right? So without knowing any of this, this is the situation that I was kind of getting myself into it. And all of which I got myself into for better or worse, because I lied about how far I could throw, right? I, you know, I told these guys I was capable of one thing. And it had not been proven. So what ended up happening is they offered me a scholarship for the next fall. And so this would have been, you know, probably February or March. Uh, it was just about spring. It was an indoor camp I went to when I was down there. So the, the spring season hadn't come yet. And so I went down in the fall and I started training. And, and I kind of, the only way I could describe it in retrospect is I took everything that I'd experienced in that small logging town, uh, that blue collar methodology. And I just kind of poured myself into that collegiate track and field system. And, you know, and it was like, show up early, stay late, ask all the questions, master the details. If, if these coaches want us to sit and watch film for two hours, you sit and watch it for three hours because it must have been important for them to want you to do it. You have to train harder than everybody, partially because you want to win, partially because you feel guilty for bullshitting these guys on the front side and maybe they're going to catch you, you know? And that was a big motivating factor for me, the idea that I might get found out. Like, what if I'm a giant zero for these guys? The idea of that was very, like, concerning to me. And so what ended up happening is I just poured myself into the sports. All I did was think about sport when I wasn't at school. You know, I always tell people in that first two years at that junior college, I, I was never late and I never missed, right? Like it didn't matter. That is the one place where I was absolutely happiest. That's where I wanted to be. It's what I love to do. I love the camaraderie of the team. I loved being coached. You know, something that no one talks about enough nowadays is, you know, we talk about coachable kids, right? Ah, that's a coachable kid. But there's a there's an onus on the athlete too. like that athlete has to want to be coached. That person has to want to master their job. They have to want to have a mentor teach them how to do the thing better than everybody else. Like there has to be some of that is on the athlete. It's not. Oh, yeah, he's coachable. Yeah, there's a lot of coachable people that don't want to master what it is that they're putting their energy into. And so I was one of these kids that, I, you know, as an athlete, I wanted to master this stuff. I wanted to be an expert. I wanted to be the best. And so with that, I just trained and trained and trained that first year at NIC. And when I got out and eventually qualified uh, for JUCO Nationals out in Odessa, Texas, you know, 
I was coming into that meet like kind of top five ish on the list, but nothing crazy. But in that process, I had gone from being, you know, like I think I might have had training throw in the fall at like 140 feet with a 16 pound hammer, you know. And when I got to Odessa that first year or my freshman year of college, uh, you know, my opening throw was 189. Right. So I throw 189 uh, and and just kind of put the whole nation on its ass because they didn't know how to respond to me. It was like the perfect storm. So a part of that story I, I, I forget to tell is when they registered for the uh, nationals, they registered me in the wrong event. And so I was a hammer thrower and I'd had a qualifying mark in the like low one eighties, which would have been like top four national ranking. So I, I was like, I hadn't accepted the fact that I'd kind of corrected that, that uh, story I told to get into college. Cause I was still like really like bothered by it, but you know, I'd moved into the top five in the nation somewhere, but when we got out to nationals, there was a clerical error and I wasn't in the men's hammer. And so our coach was freaking out, right? Uh, because it's, it was a major issue. And so what ends up happening is they, they try to load the flights at nationals back then. Anyway, it wasn't a random order situation. They would typically stack the last flight with the best athletes. And so because of the clerical error and when they got it all sorted out, I mean, and we're talking, they got it sorted out like an hour before the meet. I was, I wasn't even going to compete that day. And so, so what they did is they put me first thrower, first flight. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, I was so happy to get to compete. I just went out and let one rip. And so now all the best kids don't even know I'm there in theory. And here's a guy in the worst flight, first flight. And he who just drops this a guy. <laughs> who is this guy? Right. And he, and he drops 189 foot throw on these guys, which, <laughs> which was three feet better than the national lead. And so now all these kids had to wait like three flights and just like stewing in their own stress about what just happened. And as you can imagine, the best throwers in the meet, they, they tanked their, their prelims. They, they tanked hard. Get to them. Yeah. Yeah. They got it like one seventies, one sixties. And some of these kids were mid one eighties and I PR, right? So I have a, I have the day uh, performance. And then, so going into the finals, I'm still completely oblivious to what is really happening. I'm just competing and and i hammer them again and just you know three more rounds at nationals and they just they you could see them just breaking and falling apart like glass and there i was at the end of the day a guy that comes in you know as a 145 pound or 145 foot hammer thrower probably uh wins the first ever outdoor national title for nic at 189.9 right <laughs> and become become bud and bart's very first outdoor national champion um, and I was fortunate to go on and, and do it a couple more times at NIC. And it wasn't until I was inducted into their hall of fame in 2010, uh, as the most winningest national championship athlete in the school's history that I even told anybody that I totally skated into that college on a, on a story on a, a pretty big, uh, fishtail, to be honest. And from that experience, and training there, I got recruited to the University of Wyoming, which I did my division one at. 
Okay. So before we, maybe we move into to that portion, you say, you know, what, do you feel like that, that, that little skating in that white lie was maybe the most motivating factor, or you mentioned that when you were training and you felt, you know, the most happy out weightlifting training and throwing was right. that, what was it for you that was the biggest motivator to become the dude that threw 190 feet and scared the shit out of everybody? You know, for sure. Like at first I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe I got into this place. Right. You know, but when I look back on it, I, I knew probably on some subconscious level that was a motiv motivating effect and like, you know, earn this, right? Like there was probably a mantra in my head that kept repeating, like, just earn this, earn this, earn this, deserve this um, because of how I was raised. Um, make this right, right? There was probably some of that going on in the back of my head, but at the same time, oh, you know, I have to be honest, I was 19, you know, and most 19 year old athletes on some level are probably a sociopath. So I probably wasn't losing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> too much That's sleep fair. over it. Yeah. You know, I, I probably, you know, between like trying to meet girls and trying to pass classes and, and the camaraderie of training, I probably wasn't losing too much sleep once I got there, you know, but because of how my mindset was and how my like just fundamentals of how I was raised, it was such a huge opportunity to even be there. And the fact that what I realized is I loved the training so much. And I loved the process of, you know, learning Olympic lifting and being around these coaches that, had a personality type that was infectious. They were funny. They were, they weren't these coaches that uh, yelled and screamed and all that crap. Like they, they weren't guys that, you know, tried to break you down to build you up. None of that shit. They were, I've had that coach. Um, and I eventually got into that situation and it, it almost destroyed my career. These coaches were different. These coaches were 100% driven by we add this part to build this part. This will create this and that as a championship over and over and over. Their mantra was build, 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 seek information, add information, build, grow, compete, win. And that's how Judd Logan eventually was in my professional career. Um, and, and so I've had the two sides of that coin. I've had the destructive break you down to build you up coach. And I've had two coaches at the front and end of my career that were the growth mindset coaches. There is no comparison when you look at it statistically who the better coaches are. Both groupings of coaches, the breakdown build up as well as the growth mindset coaches, both were successful in their own right. Both produced national championship coaches. But when I look at longevity and I look at how uh, those coaches are revered by their peers and by their athletes. One of those coaches, no one is ever speaking to again. The other coaches are still Christmas card coaches, right? They're still the, the individuals that had such an impact on a group of people that those groups of people are still in contact with them. And so for me, what I discovered in those first two years at NIC is I loved being around those guys so much that I would probably have done anything to keep being around them. So it's funny if you're, people don't understand what an athlete will be willing to do 
to stay within the good graces of a good situation. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a big one. Like, uh, you know, one of my good buddies and, and coaching colleagues out at Southern Connecticut is extremely successful uh, sprints coach. And he said, he goes, you know, even when I'm hard on my athletes, because my athletes know that it's them first and everyone else second, he said, even when I have to discipline them, it doesn't really change the dynamic. And I know that my athletes will run through a wall for us at the end of every season, if necessary. He goes, it's not always easy being the fatherly figure to young athletes that are, you know, uh, struggling to figure out life. He goes, but if the motivation is always the growth of the athlete and success, it's not going to be a detriment to the relationship. And, you know, when I got to Wyoming, it was the exact opposite. It was the breakdown to build mentality. And the problem is, is most coaches that think that way don't realize that a, you don't have enough time to break someone down and build them up in a new image in a collegiate life. Like it's too short. Right. So even if it does work, you don't have time psychologically, it's ends up being about 80% break, 20% build. Right. And you're trying to get them to win based off the motivation of fear, which is a double negative, right? So the athlete's already struggling to be the best that they can be against the best that they're going to compete against. And now they're afraid to win, afraid to lose, afraid to fail. Like there's just all this negative, uh, negative connotation that goes with every variable that is with it. You know, if they don't do well, they're, they're going to get reprimanded. If they, they come out and take the national lead, they're scared to death that they're going to lose that national lead. Right. And so I went through that myself before I got injured. You know, it was, uh, you know, you're, you're going out there and you're crushing and you're doing everything right. And you're training as hard as you can train. And oh, imagine that now all of a sudden you're ranked number one in the world. Now, all of a sudden, the breakdown motivation by that coach is, well, you can't not be number one in the world. And it's like, well, you realize how hard it is to maintain a number one world ranking as a 21 year old. Yeah. Like that shit was brutal. That was way worse than anything else I was ever put in, put into at that age. Like having the, the number one world ranking and then, and instead of just accepting it and trying to do my best, which would have been top three world or an NCAA championship, all of a sudden, every day I trained, I trained in the like this umbrella fear that this coach had created that if you're not ranked number one in the world, you must be getting worse. Yeah. Right. You're not realizing. Yeah. And meanwhile, you're trying to shave an onion with a razor. Like it's, it's an extremely, extremely difficult thing to maintain, you know, because somebody else wants, well, not somebody, everybody else wants to also be number one in the world. So the pool gets very small and very, competitive uh in terms of who can do it but the total number of people that want to do it is massive yeah so you feel this this pressure so how do you feel like you were able to kind of navigate that because that's that's very tricky right not only do you have the negative you know connotation of of you have to win you've got school you've got life right there's a lot of things going on how did you feel like you were able to say okay great this is what important this is what's important to me this is how i need to tackle it and overcome this gnarly situation you know, so 
like I always tell people in retrospectively that, uh, you know, my brain didn't develop until I was 29. Right. So I, I went to, I went to university to get an education in athletics and somehow squeaked out the door with a college degree. Right. Um, I wish in retrospect, it wasn't that way, uh, <laughs> but, but that's how I finished. Like I was the guy that got the university degree. And, you know, I, I remember I was, I was like such a clown that, I, I I remember my first like MySpace. It was like when they asked you where you went to school. It was like University of Wyoming, and my degree was an ass kicking. Like it was just so ridiculous, <laughs> right? I want to be a smart ass and say what's MySpace, but yeah, what's MySpace? That's exactly right. The guy that collected his money and quietly went off into <laughs> happiness. Um, so it was, uh, you know. But when I look back on it, uh, I ended up getting hurt really bad at the University of Wyoming because. You know, you take a guy who had been, you know, like my mindset was, you know, do whatever I need to do, uh, listen to whatever the coach says, because they're the leadership of the program. Uh, If they say, you know, the old, if I say jump, I ask how high on the way down mentality. And it ended up costing me, I ended up having a catastrophic injury under that coach that, you know, for you know, it was hard enough already, but I spent my junior year of college having to be taught how to walk again. And, and when I think about going through that and having just, you know, nine months earlier been ranked number one in the world. And now all of a sudden I have a non-functional right side of my lower body. It's, uh, it was really a, a strange awakening at that point in my life you know, cause that would have been 2000 that that happened. So what would have I been? I would have been 23 turning 24, uh, you know, when that happened and, and that kind of reset everything, right? Like that made me step back and realize that the people that I was empowering with the ability to make me great, I realized, well, no, they weren't maybe making me great at all. This was all on me right? Like everything that I was achieving up to that point, they were guides, they were mentors, they were guides, they they had the map to a destination in which I wanted to go. And, and on the on the good days, they could show me the route through the city to get there that was a little bit probably smarter and faster and safer. On the bad days, they were the people that put me on the wrong bullet train and didn't care about where it was going to go just as long as it went somewhere further down the line. And so during that injury and that year that I had to go through all this like horrific rehab and all this other garbage, it made me realize that up to that point when I had been successful, it was because I was interpreting the information that I was being given And I was compiling it into a desire to be successful in a way that was self-motivated. Everything was driven by a desire for me to be the best version of myself that I could be and to make people proud, but not to fear the repercussions of what could happen. Because I looked back on it and I remember I lost at the JUCO level when I should have won, but there was never... uh, you piece of shit conversation from the coach. It was, Hey, you know what? That's not good. You know, we need to fix this. This is how we're going to do it. I know you're upset. Um, it's my fault as well as your fault, blah, blah, blah. Like onus, right? Coaches that took an onus for the failures of the program. Um, 
And because of that, I have no negative hangups over any of those major losses I had at the JUCO level. But when I got to the division one level and I had a coach that never took onus for the losses, only for the wins, things of that nature, uh, they steal from you every chance they get. And, and that's what ends up happening when you have leadership that steals, um, for lack of a, when you have leadership that steals success, but never shares in failures, they will completely deplete a person of their ability to be self-sufficient and problem solving and overcoming. And what happens is that that athlete ends up becoming dependent on that, uh, that state of existence that that breakdown coach creates to be successful to the point where all of a sudden that athlete will never be successful in things without that type of energy in their life. Um, so that injury helped me with that. It helped me break that uh, tether to that broken coaching mindset. You know? That's interesting. So you're saying more, uh, more symbiotic, right? Hey, we win together, we lose together. Yeah. So something, something that I feel like is going to be very interesting to me. So when you, you know, if you're focusing on something, right, that is your life, you get injured, you know, in this, in this situation, did you feel lost at all? So like you get the injury and you're like, oh my God, what happens? Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. And so I was laid up for the first 14 weeks in a hip cast. And so I had, you know, there was a couple things that occurred in that period of time that I thought was really interesting. I had had this massive collection of athletic friends that we all trained together. We lived together. We did everything together type of stuff. Um, you know, in that year I was at a dorm, uh, coincidentally, instead of living in the throws house, cause I just thought it was a better situation. And, uh, and, and it, it's no fault to their own because they were also sociopathic 19 year olds training. Right. So it, <laughs> I can't totally blame them in retrospect. Um, but it was, it's amazing to me. Uh, and it was probably partially due to the coaching that was happening when I got injured within about two weeks of not being at practice every day, it was as if I was no longer even a part of their world. Right. And so for me, that was something retrospectively, when I look back on it, uh, I didn't realize what was happening until I got older. And I was like, gosh, you know, I fell out of favor, uh, in terms of being a priority in these people's lives, really right after I got injured and, and, and it wasn't because they didn't like me or there was issues like that because we would find ways to reconnect, you know, on a Saturday or occasional Wednesday, they would, you get to hang out or whatever, but their world never stopped. That coach pounding on top of their head never stopped. The demands to be at practice six and a half days a week at that program never stopped. So it wasn't that I was like persona non grata within the group. It was, man, we just don't, we're still doing this thing. Like you got a pause in life, but we still have to grind along. And so what ended up happening during that year is like a lot of things, uh, you become a little more self-sufficient. You have a self-evaluation of, of what's happening. Um, and I realized that if I was going to get through that injury, I was going to have to do it on my own. I was going to have no support system outside of the athletic trainers that were helping me when they could at the school. And my coach had no cares in the world about whether or not 
I was of any benefit because as far as they were concerned, they were still going to go try to win a national title and make Olympic athletes. And if I'm not in that pool, I'm not in any pool, right? I was mm-hmm. like a discarded, uh, a discarded broken variation of, of what they were trying to build. Turn and and so I, I, yep, exactly. So I, I took a big step back psychologically that year, turned inward and said, okay, this experience is without a doubt worst experience I've ever had in my life up to this point. Uh, can't walk. Um, I'm a mess psychologically. I felt miserable. And that lasted probably for the first four weeks that I was in the hip cast and I, and kind of bedridden, kind of like just shitty, you know? And so eventually I, I knew I was coming out of that cast and I was going to have to start the rehab process. And so you know, maybe it was longer than that. Maybe it was a solid eight, eight and a half weeks where I was just psychologically probably in a really bad spot. Um, And it was when I came out of that hip cast and they put me into a soft shell, put me on crutches and had me start going to the training room on a daily schedule to have them like really do nothing other than evaluate it every day Um, that I, I made the decision And I made the decision kind of like matter of factly. I said to myself, I'm like, okay, there, there's a couple things that I'm going to do. And I, I don't know if I'm ever going to play sports again at this point, you know, they're telling me I might not ever walk again with a knee that bent, you know, in that generation is possible. So what I made the decision to do is I, I said, okay, if I have to get through this, no matter how miserable and painful it was for me, both physically and psychologically, I knew that from three to four 30 every day, it was not the trainer's fault, the fault of the trainers. It was not the doctor's fault. And it wasn't the fault of anybody that was in that training room that I was there. So for at the minimum an hour and a half, every single day, it would be the most positive, most enjoyable and most, uh, for me, lighthearted part of my day. So I would go into the training room every day with a plan to get better. I went in every day thanking and uh, full of gratitude for the people that are there to help me. My trainers that were assigned to me, the one of which was uh, uh, went on to join the military, became a lieutenant. It's funny when I think back, she was such a quiet girl, but by the end of that period, there was like a different energy with her and I, when we worked together, because I went in and she became the coach. I became the athlete. When I was in there working with her, I was always, thank you. What can I do better? What do you recommend? How do we make this better? Um, Which made, gave her a psychological break because what people don't realize is when you're dealing with broken humans all day and and first responders deal with this all the time, it's just, it's all negative. You're, you're seeing people at their absolute worst all day long. And so for me, I was like, okay, so if I go in and I'm working with her today, how do I be the break in her day? How do I be the person that is 100% full of gratitude for the situation I'm in? And it was hard to do. Like there was days where I'd be getting ready to head to the training room and I was broken, like mentally broken, body broken. And I would, you know, I would sit outside of that training room in my car 
and I would just kind of like go through a mantra and I would fake it until you make it. And I put on a face and I put on an energy and I would go in and I'd be happy to be there. And I was, and I was excited to see the people that were, and I knew I wasn't getting better at this point. Right. Like it was just, it was, it was all uh, theatrics, you know, I hadn't progressed at all. Um, and so I just kept grinding away and, and when it hurt, you know, I just kind of turned internal and, you know, and I had a, a therapist, a physical therapist that was working with me at the time. And they were doing this, like this difficult stuff. Like I had a bunch of metal in my leg and when they moved my leg, the metal would grind against the bone, but it had to be done. And, you know, I remember clearly, I remember just kind of breathing through it, passing out and then waking up and they were still working on it. And he kind of got used to our rhythm. Like he knew that if I, if I was going to tap out, it was, it was pretty serious. And, and I remember a couple of times where he's like, oh, you're pretty green today. He goes, you know, are you going to throw up? And I'm like, I don't know. I've never thrown up before from pain. And he's like, well, you know, let's just see what happens. And and he would keep grinding away and doing the exercises and the drills to get this metal in my leg to kind of get some movement into it. And it was wires that were going through my tibia. So the wires would work like a string inside the bone. And so when they would move and twist and try to keep that from scarring down too much, I'd pass out and then I'd wake up and I'd pass out. And, you know, in retrospect, you know, I don't think any of those are probably in the scope of practice of physical therapy, right? Like, I don't think you want your, your patient to pass out in the training room, but we just had an agreement. I didn't complain and I didn't blame and I didn't project any of that uh, hurt onto that guy because I knew he was doing the very best job he could do. And then when I worked with my other trainer, I knew she was doing the very best that she could do. And, you know, we just kind of pushed through it and we ended up getting through that. And then, you know, a couple more surgeries later, I was back on my feet, you know, and this definitely is a tangent from the question we were going on, but the, the whole mindset that entire time was that injury and that experience taught me that I was most successful when I worked in correlation or worked with a coach that could guide or teach or, or help me with information, but everything was on me. The win was me. The loss was me. The injury was me. The recovery was me. Um, and people think by no means did I become a more selfish athlete after that. But what I, and I think people get confused by that sometimes it's like, you know, uh, a me mentality as an athlete, ah, as a selfish athlete. No, it's not selfish. It's, it's taking onus for everything. A selfish athlete only takes responsibility for the good days. Yeah. Right. It sounds more self-aware than anything. Self-aware. Yeah. I think you're, you're correct. It's, you just realize that you're in control of the ship, right? Like you got a navigator that knows the best way to get through some hard seas at times, if they're a good navigator, but at the end of the day, you still got to turn the wheel, right? So if you want to listen to them, or if you don't want to listen to them, that's your choice. And you become much better at discerning, good navigators from bad navigators and what ends up happening if if you actually take the time to listen you know what you have to understand that you're not always getting the best information you're not always getting the correct information that navigator may have 
either misinformation or an agenda. And you have to sometimes question that. Even as a young athlete, there's times where you have to step back and be like, what is my coach talking about? Like, you know, it's, I, like I'm going to put in the work, but he's not going to break me. He's yeah. not going to, he's not going to change who I am. Right. And it's funny. Cause I look back and we had a couple wild athletes on our team or so I thought in my like good Canadian memory, right. Of being super cordial, <laughs> but we had a couple wild athletes and you know what? They were successful as hell, even under that bad coach. And they never changed. You know, they'd catch some shit and they would maybe have to get reprimanded, but they, they, it, it never phased them. And now when I look back and I know them and I know their story, they, they were raised in such a more tumultuous environment than that coach could have ever created. Yeah. They were just, they were beyond it. They were, they were harder, tougher, uh, more, uh, even if they're not smarter, they were, they were simply more experienced. You know, th this coach was probably like a million other people that already saw play that game to them. For me, it was the first time and it cost me dearly. You know? Yeah. So I'm hearing up until this point, then maybe a couple key things that I feel like I've learned, right, is in the in the world and, and honestly, any world, right, know the environment and, and take on the approach of the growth mindset, but also yeah. take ownership for whatever it is that you're working on right? You've got all of these other guides along the way, which are there really to help you through good or bad, but your yeah. success depends on really the amount of ass you put behind whatever effort you're on. For sure. Um, I, I think so. And, and I think the thing that I learned later, um, you know, you, you will get much further ahead by having a growth mindset and an opportunist. And, and again, people think of this word, with the wrong mentality a lot of times, but an opportunist mindset too, where an opportunist isn't someone that takes advantage of everything. An opportunist is somebody that's willing to say yes to things that other people are saying no to, or maybe people aren't paying attention to. And, and so for me, I, coming out of that injury, it was, it was like a rebirth in the sense that I'm like, oh shit, I'm on borrowed time with this whole athletic thing, right? <laughs> like I didn't We're all realize on borrowed time, <laughs> borrowed time. Right. And so I was like, man, I didn't realize this thing could just stop. Like, oh, I was yeah. like, huh, you know, in the peak of my, in my prime, I was taken, right? Like that was what I realized. I'd been pulled from success and I didn't have a say in the matter. And I was like, holy shit. Well, if I get this athletic thing back, I'm going to take much better care of it. That's for sure. And I'm definitely going to appreciate it a lot more. And if an opportunity comes up, I'm going to say yes to a lot of them, uh, regardless of whether or not I'm afraid or not, or scared to move far from home, you know? And so what ended up happening with that is it really did open up a mindset for me that was a lot different. I, you know, I, I took big chances after that in terms of what I was comfortable with. You know, I moved out east and started coaching at the division one level. When I got out there, another opportunity within a year came up that I could go back to training full time again. And it was a it was a huge what if it wasn't a career move at the time, psychologically, you know, I, I was going to be living with like five dudes in a house in my early 20s, scraping by and ch chasing the Olympic dream. But for me, I was like, well, let's just see what happens, yeah. right? Like 
I want to do it. I want to be an athlete. Let's see if this is the way it is. Not knowing that going out and training with Judd Logan in Ohio and that Olympic development group was going to introduce me to the best coaches in the country. I didn't know it was going to introduce me to the best throws coach in the country. I didn't know it was going to open up avenues and doors that eventually would have me traveling full-time all over the world. But it was just being like, okay, I'm going to ride this as hard as I can, as smart as I can for as long as I can. And that's, and that ended up being what happened. And, you know, and that thrust me into a, a year with the Cleveland Browns as a third assistant strength coach. It got me with the Polycon group traveling 200 days a year, all over Europe and the United States. And then inevitably that put me in a situation where I was getting exhausted from that type of travel. And someone said, well, what if you wanted an opportunity working full-time in Saudi Arabia with the Saudi Royal family, would you do it? And I was like, well, I have no reason not to do it, right? I mean, financially, it's a good decision. It's similar travel-wise to what I'm used to, but less hectic. I'll go from one-star to five-star travel. Yeah, why not? Let's see what happens. I'll do it for a year, right? Like, what's the, what's the worst that could come out of it is I get to see somewhere I've never seen, and I'm like, ah, yeah. And, you know, seven years later, it's like, wow, that's a pretty good deal. And then from there bumps me into a situation where, you know, someone, you know, Bert, as you know, Bert at Sornex is like, Hey, would you be willing to, you know, consult with a country artist? And I'm like, well, who is it? Ah, Zach Brownie. He needs some help for some of the stuff he's doing recreationally. And it's like a year later, I'm traveling around the country on a tour bus, completely mind blown by this weird world that, I'm now like sitting on Zach's bus, having normal conversations with a normal dude about normal <laughs> stuff, right? <laughs> but I think it all kind of got triggered when I think back now on it by having that catastrophic upheaval at a young age in my athletic career said, hey, take advantage of good opportunity. You never, ever have to be bought in completely forever right? But if you're going to buy in, you have to buy in fully, right? Mm -hmm. But if it, but if it sucks and you can see that there's, there's a, a crest to the river and it's going to go over, you have to start to figure out that you need to get that boat on dry land or somebody else is just going to let you go over. Yeah. Right. And, and that's what I learned with that coach and, and that situation and getting injured that badly, that young. And at that point in my career is not everybody um, is going to steer you wrong by any means. But the one thing that I learned during that process is captain your own ship, do the best you can with the information that you have and be willing to listen to the directions and navigation of people that have been down the river before, but be aware that they may not have gone as far or nor have they kind of navigated the same water that you may end up on. And if that's the case, you may have to part ways with that, that person, not in an emotional friendship way, but just understand that, you know, they may not be able to get you to where you need to go. And if that's the case, again, you got to look at yourself and be like, okay, who's captain in the ship? Is it me or am I a passenger? And it's like, you have to continuously, in my opinion, be making that decision. 
You know, are you just along for the ride in a, in a passive sense in life or are you taking onus for the choices and decisions, good yeah. and bad? How you are know? you, how have you decided, like, I guess, when to either shift directions, right? Because a lot of these, a lot of those changes that you made, right, all definitely fell within the same category, but not the yep. same thing, right? How, right? how were you able to sit down? And I'm kind of asking for myself, right, with this yep. podcast is like, hey, you know, it's, it's in, it's in, in its infancy. Well, it's hard to say it's in, in infancy. Never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Hey, I've got kind of an idea of what I want to go with, but I'm changing as I, as I go, right. Like I'm working to develop and understand, like, how were you able to say, okay, great. You know, maybe, maybe being coach with the Browns isn't necessarily the next 10 right. years shift change, moving on to working with the Royal family. How were you able to kind of think about those things? So, you know, when I look back on it, uh, like when I got hired by the Browns, I thought, oh, this is the best job ever. It, you know, it's going to lead to a potential NFL career or high level NCAA career um, where I'll be in the human performance side. And, and I probably would have been pretty blind to a lot of what I was dealing with there because it's uh it's the break it and replace it mentality at that level. Right. Um, and what I realized kind of halfway through was, Oh yeah, these guys don't give a shit about these players. These guys are just kind of crushing through and punching, you know, time clocks and the players are going to do what the players are pretty much going to do regardless. Um, you know, you got a guy that comes in at the start of a season leaves at the end of the season, has been at three programs in three years and has been successful at three completely different places. Right. Like, so the players are going to do what they need to do to be successful. Um, Cause they know that they don't really have the support other than the financial from the actual program. Um, and so what I started to realize is when I knew it was time to exit a situation, like leaving the NFL to go to the private sector from the private sector to the public speaking education sector. And then from that to, you know, private uh, Royal family stuff, which eventually grew beyond even human performance, which I'm still with is, is it a, is it making you a better coach, a better professional? Is it improving the standard of your living? Right. Cause this is, it's not just about being an athlete anymore. It's about, you know, being uh, having a thing that allows you to do things, you know, it's, it's the way the world works. Um, but the big one for me initially is, am I getting up first thing in the morning with a desire to be at the place that I want to be? Or am I sitting in my car having to go through a mantra to convince myself and to convince the people that I'm about to work with that it's where I want to be? <laughs> Right. And if you're having to do that every single day, you're not going to be or maximize the amount of success you're capable of. Right. You want to be the place that people want to be. You don't want to have to convince the place that's where you want to be. Right. And, and that's there's a different mindset that comes with that, you know. And so showing up to a place, knowing that's where you wanted to get up and go to is the first stage for me of knowing that I'm where I need to be. Is it self-motivated? Is it, is it coming from a sense of growth mindset? Am I going into it going, this is where I need to be for as long as I can be to enjoy life? 
if that starts to change or something in that situation uh, no longer is fulfilling you at all, you have to either look at what happened to the situation that you were in love with uh, and whether or not it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, which sometimes happens. So you're like, oh, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Is this who I am and what I want to be? And if it's not, you have to start making a plan, like, because I don't believe in wish-washy mindset. So you have to start creating a new plan and a new idea and start to calculate what it is you want to do to be successful. And if it's not that, then what is it? And sometimes you have to get mentors involved again that have been through this process. And sometimes it's a business mentor at this point or a professional mentorship and be like, okay, I thought I wanted to be an NFL strength coach, but I realize you spend 15 hours a day in a cement box. I get there when it's dark. I leave when it's dark. I don't ski. I barely have time to work out. I don't get into the mountains, you know, haven't gone on a hunting trip in 11 years. Like you start to look at all that stuff and be like, okay, so is coaching strength and conditioning at this level more important than all of those variables? If it is, it is, right? And, and you are still on the path that you needed to be on uh, or wanted to be on. But if you can't say that you're fulfilled, then you need to, and I don't care how much money's involved, you need to stop and reevaluate whether or not that that is what you want to do or should be doing. Because like we just said a few minutes ago, you know, time waits for no man and you don't know when something is going to intervene and completely eradicate what you thought was the perfect scenario anyway. You don't know when you're going to be taken in your prime as an athlete, as they say. So that mindset kind of came back into play. And I'm like, well, none of this is fulfilling. I love the guys, the guys and the relationships on the team were awesome but the system was horrible to work under. So for me, I was like, okay, what do I like to do? Well, I like treating and coaching, which I don't get to do very much, even at that level. You know, we got guys like 20, 30 minutes a week sometimes. So that wasn't even fulfilling. So I had the title of coach, but I wasn't coaching. I wasn't teaching or developing anyone. Um, and I also liked the ideas being able to work in an environment where I got to interact with a huge or a large uh, swath of coaching personalities. And so, you know, as the universe typically does, it may not be instantaneous. Sometimes one will fold into the other, but I had a little bit of gap after the NFL where I went back to school to become a therapist. And while I was getting more education to be better at what I did, an opportunity arose and that one kind of folded one into the other, like two weeks after I, I finish uh, therapy school for neuromuscular therapy, Paul Quinn out East is like, I was in Cleveland at the time, but he was out in Rhode Island is like, Hey, we're looking for instructors to teach our curriculum. You'll travel a lot, but you'll coach a lot and it'll be a public speaking gig. And so timing was good. Timing was right. It was what I wanted to do. I'd been spending the last couple of years, like filling myself with information as I, you know, could go back to school and do. And I went and took a job traveling and speaking. 
Um, and now all of a sudden I was back into the role of standing and teaching and talking and interacting and trying to impart wisdoms and different things that I'd learned and methodologies on this new group of eager athletes. And it had a high turnover. So it was a lot of exposure to a lot of new faces, you know, and there I was 220 days a year on the road. You know, I've been all over Europe and down into <laughs> the Dominican, like I'd seen and finally got to interact with all these things. But imagine that like three, four years in of being 220 days on the road, you're like, Whoo. Okay. So this is, this is amazing, but let me go back to my checklist of how does all, how do all these variables get met? Uh, am I happy? Do I have a good relationship? Uh, am I able to do the things that I want to do to be fulfilled when I'm not doing this job? And you start to do that checklist again and you're like, okay, so I've progressed in life. I'm making better money. Things are going well. However, I'm now still a one dimensional existence. Sure. Do I love it enough to continue to be one dimensional? If the answer is yes, then you continue and you just accept that you sacrifice one for the other because your happiness is being met. And I realized at that point that I was actually running on fumes, right? Like I loved what I did, but I had nothing else. Like I was, I was airports and classrooms for years. And so as life will often do, if you ask that question long enough, the universe will typically start to give you opportunities. Now, are you, <laughs> are you able to notice them when they come up? Not always, right? You, sometimes you're too blinded to realize the opportunity was presented. Um, but if you're an opportunist, you'll typically keep one eye open, you know? And so there I was, I was, you know, sitting in the UK, lecturing away in Manchester. And uh, lo and behold, there was a representative in the crowd um, for the Saudi royal family and a female athlete, because at the time they had not received allow uh, uh, an acceptance of women's sports in public, let alone at the Olympic level. But there was uh, a Saudi athlete that was being represented. She wanted to start training for track and field, not knowing how good she could have been or how good she was. And they were looking for a coach, not just a personal trainer, which is typically the case in, in Saudi or the Arab Peninsula, is they just hire all these high-end PT, personal trainers from the UK or Australia. They come down, they pay them exorbitant amounts of money, then they leave in four weeks and nothing ever gets better, right? It's, it's just nature of that world. And so, I, you know, when they contacted me, you know, they said, well, this is what we're looking at doing. We're looking for a coach. We're looking for someone that can manage her programming for a year at a time. So even if you're not there physically all the time, you also have a staff that you oversee. So there's coherence to a program. It's like a real training system. And I realized at that point, I'd, got, I'd been lecturing so much that I hadn't actually been developing athletes in a few years. You know, I've been teaching coaches, but not teaching, not coaching. Right. Right. And so I was like, man, this is a giant, what if, so, you know, what I did is I said, okay, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to step away from this really public career, um, you know, where I was getting a lot of social media attention, I was getting a lot of international attention from all these athletes and coaches. Um, I'm like, okay, if I'm stepping away from this, what do I need? And so I just, I, I did it really simple. I looked at my salary from the Poliquin group for a year. 
condensed it to four months. And I said in my contract, if you can guarantee me four months over the next 12, we'll do it for at least a year. Right. And my, my, my mindset was very simple. I knew that if they could pay me that salary over the four months, um, that I would have eight months to get a new job if it went sideways. Like you know, it was, it was, it was super simple mindset. I'm like, you know, give me eight months to get a new career. And so, uh, so we did, and they agreed to the terms and, you know, four months, uh, ends up becoming more like six and a half, you know, so I'm making more money than I did at Poliquin cause I'm doing two and a half more months a year. And one year turned into seven. Um, because the athlete ended up being the type of athlete you wanted to work with. But more importantly is it now gave me, you know, like it, by no means was it, is it an easy schedule? Um, but you know, a month on month off, uh, was actually really good for me at that time in my life, especially the first four and a half years I was doing it first, you know, quadrennial cycle of an Olympics because I would go to Saudi or go to Saudi and then who knows where we would end up to be honest, but I would go do coach, uh, coach hands-on every day on the floor for a year or for a month. But then I had 30 days, more like 27 days that I literally would do whatever I wanted to do. If I wanted to go ski for a month, or if I wanted to go up to Canada and stay at my parents' house for a month and, or who knows what I, I bounced all over the place during that month. I'd go to conferences. I'd go hang out with bird at Sornex or, or do whatever I could. And, and it became, Oh, okay. So this is more like the balance I was looking for yeah. where I could actually coach and pursue and do the thing I wanted to do. But now I had the time on my off months to be the student again, to go to lectures, to learn, to study. And I actually had the freedom to do so. So I was making a massive sacrifice by getting on a plane and leaving North America six months of every year, but I was getting a huge amount back. Like as crazy as it sounds, I saw my parents in Canada more during the first four years of that job than I had in the previous 10 years when I was full-time based in the United States. Yeah. Because, you know, life is like that. Like what is a two week, you know, holiday, like a year that's nothing. Now all of a sudden I had six months a year that I could actually do whatever I wanted. And they're like, dude, get out of our house. Quit eating our food. Exactly. Right. (laughs) And, And people are like, well, how do you spend so much time in the middle East? you know, like not as a negative, but as a geographical. And it's like, because I get to spend six months wherever I want. (laughs) Like you don't realize what six months off a year actually is until you start blocking it out in 30 day blocks. Yeah. Like that, that's a lot, you know? Um, well, I guess some people know now <laughs> pandemics is giving people 30 days <laughs> off, but yeah, you're, yeah, this is my office. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, uh, but it's interesting retrospectively to look and be like, you know, it gave me the freedoms to be creative in other endeavors. It gave me the freedoms to, you know, uh, go to Finland on a Christmas vacation to, uh, you know, to like this year, or even before this year, like to ski, you know, 60 plus days in a winter became something you could actually do if the schedule allowed it, you know? And it's a lot of good stuff. I feel like I've learned, I feel like I've learned a lot. I've taken a lot of notes so far. And I think, you know, maybe to, to summarize, cause I don't want to steal your yep. whole morning. Cause I, I know that I could, I could <laughs> chat. 
Um, I'm learning if you get lost, that's totally okay. Take ownership of your actions. Take ownership of your wins and losses. Seek out people that will help you also take ownership of those wins, losses, and guide you along the way. But at the end of the day, you're responsible for wherever it is that you take your own life. Um, Keep an eye open for success or for new opportunities. Take chances that have been calculated, calculated risks, and uh, understand where your values are to help guide you in what decisions you're making. Because then you can take six months off a year to do whatever you want. (laughs) <laughs> right. And, and, and still be able to pay your bills. Right. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I think so. I, I think don't be afraid to say yes to opportunity. Don't expect every opportunity to be successful. Yeah. Right. But if you're, if you're doing it with the right mindset, unless somebody F's you over, right. Which happens all the time in life. Um, and you have to learn how to take some of the, you have to, you have to learn how to get punched in the face to win a fight, right? Like there, there's, you know, there, there's that harsh reality that people don't want to acknowledge. Like, like I've had some pretty bad punches to the face in my life. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the hospital. I've spent a, I spent a lot of time figuring things out. You know, uh, I, I don't hide the fact that, you know, I was divorced in my thirties. Right. And maybe it was because I was saying yes to too many opportunities and not enough focus on what I should have been focusing on in terms of my personal life. So like, I fully admit that there's black eyes in there, but at the same time, man, there's a lot of good information came out of those black eyes. Yeah. Like there's a lot of life lessons, man. Yeah. Like, things that now I feel comfortable, uh, comfortable enough knowing about to be able to be like, uh, you know, Hey captain, (laughs) like we need to change that course. You know, like I'm now comfortable being that role where maybe I can navigate or help uh, a younger person on that river where you're just like, "Eh, we can go for that ride. You know, it, it, it could be an interesting one, but how about we just kind of deviate? Like, just let's deviate just a touch. Right. So I, I don't regret a lot of that stuff because I feel like it has helped me make some better decisions or at the very least prevent people from making catastrophic ones. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, it's getting to be work o'clock for me, but I appreciate nice. you hopping on. Let me wake you up and uh, and chatting for a little bit. I hope uh, I hope we can keep in touch and for sure. Maybe uh, as I learn some more and take some of what I've learned from you to and put it to to practice, we can chat again. So that'd be awesome. I'd love to be back on. Everybody, that was Derek Woodski. If you can't tell, he is in no uncertain terms an amazing human. Derek, man, I appreciate your time and being willing to chat with me bright and early this morning. Uh, Your story is awesome, and I love all the information you provided. And uh, hopefully this can be leveraged by a few athletes to steer them in the right direction and uh, continue continue developing in all ways of life. Uh, I feel like I could have sat and listened all day, and uh, I really do look forward to tapping back into your knowledge, experience, and uh, mind as time goes on. Uh, Derek's information is linked in the episode description. I would highly encourage you to Google him, of all things, and dig into his varying channels uh, that he's appeared on to continue learning. 
In all honesty, this was barely, if even, scratching the surface of his knowledge. Uh, also linked in the episode description is the Vanguard website. I would love you all to tag me with your gear at the gym, on a hunt, at the range, or arresting a bad guy. Whatever it is that you do that makes you awesome. One more announcement. Uh, I've been feeding off just about everyone on how to improve the show and relate to you all. So I'm going to do my best to make uh, this a little bit more conversational. So as I work through some backlog of interviews, you might see some changes in the flow and my level of engagement with the guests just to help you understand who I am a little bit more and, uh, you know, why I'm doing this and what I want to uh, get out of it. Uh, in addition to that, I'm going to start doing a, a segment with kind of just some of the random stuff that I'm working on, learning about, uh, having learned uh, what I'm super into, and then uh, potentially leveraging social media to uh, maybe let you guys captain the boat for a day. I think this Friday... I'll be releasing one episode uh, where I had folks pull uh, what I should study for the week. And I think as far as I understand, we're talking about bear shit. So <laughs> I guess that's where we're at today. But uh, with that being said, please follow me on the gram at The Vanguard Project with periods in between. And uh, let's keep in touch. Otherwise, you'll have a kick-ass weekend. Thanks. Mountain Primal Fuel Sticks are perfect for folks like you and I, constantly busy, stuck on the road, sitting at a desk between job sites, crushing Excel spreadsheets, or if you're one of the lucky ones, headed to the range or a hunting trip. They are the perfect size to keep a couple in a pack, or if you've got a wife that gets hangry, to toss her way. Admittedly, when my wife gets hangry, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation, so please use these to your advantage. They are 100% Highland Cow with zero hormones and zero antibiotics straight out of Colorado. Use code VANGUARD to get 15% off at mountainprimal.com.